The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Today's episode of Chilling Tales for Dark Nights is proudly brought to you by Obscura, the immersive true crime podcast that shines a spotlight on the darker things in life. Now available on the Himalaya app or your podcast app of choice. I'll be back after our first story to tell you a little bit more about Obscura. Until then, settle in, get cozy, and prepare to be unsettled. This show is about to begin. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of three rounds of frightening fiction about paranormal personalities, aquatic anomalies, and running for your life. Literally. I'm Otis Jiry, host of the Scary Stories Told in the Dark podcast, now in its fourth season, 
and available on iTunes and wherever podcasts can be found. And I'm filling in for Steve Taylor. Tonight, I'll be your host as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your wildest imaginations. Joining us tonight to help bring our frightening fiction to life are voice actors Alicia Pavlis, Jonathan West, and Jason Hill. Now, get your ticket ready, take your seat in our theater of the minds, and brace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Our first tale tonight is brought to us courtesy of author Stephanie Schism and is voiced by Alicia Pavlis. In it, we meet a gentleman who develops a friendship with a beautiful woman, but she has a rather unusual problem. He's about to find out just how deep the rabbit hole goes. Without further ado, I present to you Dandelion. The first time I saw Brett, I was 19. I'd found a job working security at Dave's storage unit. My duties included keeping vagrants and thieves from disturbing the 40 rental units that were laid out in five neat rows in the middle of downtown Atlanta and helping customers with lost combinations for their locks. It wasn't the safest part of town to be working a night shift, but it seemed to be easy work and the hours meshed nicely with my class schedule at the community college. I trained two shifts on days and then showed up that Thursday at 10 p.m. for my first shift alone. Or so I thought. I arrived 10 minutes early. A guy in a Fallout Boy t-shirt sat at one desk playing solitaire, and a girl with long blonde hair had her feet propped up on the other, with a ball cap pulled down covering her face. Hi, I said when he looked up. I'm Jason, the new guy. I'm Tom, he said and started shoving stuff into a backpack. Quiet day so far. Good luck. The crazies come out at night. The girl lowered her hat and stared at me. She was the kind of beautiful that just stops a guy in his tracks. Big green eyes, full lips, flawless skin. I realized I was staring and mumbled a hi in her direction. Her eyes widened and she tipped her head in greeting. Tom looked up at me, eyebrows raised. Yeah, so... All the keys are in the top drawer of that filing cabinet, along with a master list of the combination locks. Don't give anyone access unless they show two forms of ID and you make a copy of it. They'll fire your ass if you're not a stickler about that. And it has to be the person with their name on the contract, not a girlfriend, not a wifey. Some guy almost got canned because he let a wife in and she left with his whole stamp collection in the middle of a divorce. It was him, the girl said, and pointed at Tom. He ignored her. See ya, wouldn't want to be ya, he said. Night shift sucks. The girl flipped him the bird and I laughed. Tom shot me a look that I couldn't decipher. But then he gave a half-hearted wave and shut the door behind him. I looked at the row of monitors and then back at the girl. She hadn't taken her eyes off me and I felt awkward and flushed under her gaze. I'm Jason, I said again and immediately felt like an idiot. Brett, she said, and leaned back in the chair. Nice to have someone to talk to in this joint. What about Tom? I asked, sitting in the seat he'd vacated. She shook her head. He's a tool. 
So, are you second shift or third? I thought I was working alone. She shrugged. Wherever they need me. I guess they called her in to keep an eye on the new guy, and she didn't want to say she was supposed to babysit me. It was funny because she seemed standoffish at first, but she was a talker and I loved to listen to her. By 4am, it felt like I had known her forever. Just one of those instant clicks and maybe even more so by the types of conversations people tend to have at those hours. We talked everything from childhood to politics. I think I was already falling a little in love with her. She saw me stretch and said, You want to go outside? We can do a walk around. A cool breeze blew, but she didn't seem to notice. I couldn't stop sneaking glances at her as we walked. Faded jeans, scuffed boots, black t-shirt and a camel jacket. I probably had close to the same outfit in my closet, but on her, even the ordinary seemed beautiful. We walked the length of the first row and started down the second when she stopped and touched a bright yellow dandelion sprouting up through a crack in the sidewalk with the toe of her boot. Those are my favorite flowers. I laughed. Those are weeds. She smiled. Those aren't weeds. They're wishes. Haven't you ever blown on one and made a wish? And even when they're yellow, that's my favorite color. They're such happy, hopeful little things. That made me smile, too. I'd never thought of them in that way. So many girls I knew seemed hung up on materialistic things. Brett could find beauty in even a small flower. I was captivated. When we made it to the fourth row, she stopped. Her face pinched into a grim expression, and she said, I don't walk down this row. Why? I asked, taken aback by the look in her eyes. Number 27. It gives me the creeps. It was a third bay door, and it looked exactly like the first two. I didn't understand, but I wanted her to smile again. Well, then we skipped this row. We finished walking the last row. The drink machine stood at the end, and I asked her if she wanted one. She shook her head as I fed quarters into the slot. A payphone I hadn't noticed rang shrilly, making me jump. I laughed at myself and glanced at her. Brett's expression wiped away my smile. She looked terrified. Don't answer it, she shouted. Don't ever answer it. I gaped at her, not understanding. I, I don't, I won't. What's wrong? She didn't answer. She started walking briskly back toward the office. I chased her, my change and soft drink forgotten. That phone rings every morning at 4.17, she said as I opened the door for her. When you answer it, it sounds like dead air, or there's some sort of hissing noise. It gives me the creeps. Probably some automated thing, wrong number or something, but it's set on auto-program. She looked at me and said, Do you believe in ghosts, Jason? You think a ghost is calling? Don't make fun of me, she snapped. I'm sorry. I held up my hands in a gesture of surrender. Do I believe in ghosts? Well, uh, I haven't ever seen one. She made a scoffing noise, and I said, But I won't rule them out. My grandmother believed in ghosts. She said she had the sight, and swore that some people in our family could see them. Some had the gift of precognition, too. She was very smart, reasonable lady. Mollified, Brett sat at the desk. So, do you think everyone becomes a ghost when they die, or do some move on to someplace else? Why would people be stuck here? I shrugged. Uh, unfinished business? Violent death? I don't know. What do you think? 
She took a moment before responding. Maybe the unfinished business? Maybe... maybe there just is nothing else. The easy vibe of our earlier conversation disappeared. She seemed anxious, stressed. No matter what I tried to talk about, she seemed distracted. When Abe, the old guy on first shift, appeared to relieve us, she walked out the door without saying goodbye. I bid a hasty good morning to him and ran to catch up. I almost lost her, but I spied her as she got on the train. It had been a long time since I had a martyr pass, so I had to dig for the 250 fare. She frowned when I sat next to her in the back, and I realized I probably looked like a creepy stalker guy. Too late now, but I didn't want her to be upset with me. I really like this girl. What are you doing? She asked. I wanted to run, but the train lurched forward. I, I feel like I upset you, and I'm sorry. She looked at an elderly lady in the next row, who was staring at us. Brett shook her head like it was okay, but the lady got up and moved toward the front. It's not you, Brett said, but I don't want to talk about it. Let's talk about dandelions, then, I said. They're my new favorite flower. They're like you. Pretty and magical. As corny as that was, she laughed, and our conversation slipped back into the same easiness it had before that payphone rang last night. At least, until the next stop. A lumbering bald man with beady dark eyes got on and took a seat a couple rows in front of us. I saw Brett stiffen, though he didn't pay much attention to us at all. His gaze fixed on a pretty Latina who sat in the middle, playing on her smartphone. The rest of the ride, Brett never took her eyes off the man. He wasn't pleasant to look at, but I didn't understand her terror. This is my stop, she said and stood. The dark-haired girl also stood. Brett, I said, are, where are we? I need to get back to my motorcycle. She laughed, then the tension evaporating from her face. You crazy boy. It will cycle back around in about six more stops. I'll see you tonight. She waved and walked forward, giving the man a wide berth. For a moment, he looked like he was about to get behind them, and I was prepared to do so as well, so she'd feel safe, but he just sat there. Brett was already there when I arrived that night. She laughed when she saw the small bouquet of dandelions in my hand. Tom's eyebrows shot up. He opened his mouth, then closed it again. He left in record time. I don't think that guy likes me, I said. She waved her hand dismissively as I put the dandelions in water. He doesn't like anyone, and thank you for the flowers. They're lovely. So were you, I thought, but I didn't have the courage to say it yet. I wasn't about to bring up the guy on the train. I hated that tense, scared look she'd worn this morning. But to my surprise, she did. That man is evil, she said. Please don't ask me to explain how I know. I'm afraid he means to hurt that girl, and I don't know how to stop him. My stomach dropped. Brett, did he hurt you? We need to call the cops. She hesitated long enough to make me think he had. But she said, no, I don't know. I can't remember things, and I'm scared to remember things. The phone makes me think of something, but I push it back. Anyway, it's not about me now. It's about that girl. She took a deep breath. Let's talk about it later. I don't want to think about it right now. I looked up dandelions between classes today. I said. People in the 1800s used to blow on them after they went to seed. If all the seeds blew away, the object of your affection shared your feelings. I shook my head and gave her a pointed look. You may not know it yet, but I think you're in love with me. She laughed long and hard, and I grinned. 
pleased to see you're happy again. Then her face got sad. I wish I'd met you before, Jason. What's wrong with now? I asked with uncharacteristic bravery. You're not married, are you? She shook her head. No. But I'm not what you think I am. There are a lot of bad things, Jason. I I don't want to explain because I really like you. You're a beautiful girl with a weird taste in flowers. Think of all the money I'd save on Valentine's Day if you were my girlfriend. She laughed again. Just keep talking to me. I hardly talk to anyone anymore and you're so funny. Tell me about the motorcycle. I'm glad you made it back to it. I actually didn't come back to it this morning. I admitted with a laugh. I got off the train and took an Uber to my place, then hitched a ride to school. Took the train back to work tonight. I was kind of hoping I'd see you. I'd seen the creepy guy, but I didn't tell her that. Uh, Come outside and I'll show it to you. She walked around it, trailing her fingers on the gleaming blue paint. It's pretty, she said. But I don't like these things. They'll get you killed. I was hoping I could take you for a ride sometime. She gave me a glance that looked like a definite no and said, We'll see. Everything was fine until the phone began to ring at 4.17am. I watched her face get that same terrified look and wondered what in the world had happened to her and if it somehow connected to the creepy guy. Around time for the day shift guy to come on, she mentioned the guy on the train again. I don't know why, but I have the feeling he's going to do something to her. Soon. I hate to ask because I know you need sleep and to go to class, but would you ride the train with me again? Of course, I said. Abe appeared at six on the dot. Good morning, sunshine, he said, dropping his backpack onto a chair. Good morning, Abe, Brett said. To me, she said, I love that old guy. I chatted with him for a moment. Brett moved to the door, and I said goodbye to Abe, intent on following her, when he called out. Hey! His old face was pale when I glanced back. He pointed a shaky finger at the styrofoam cup filled with dandelions. Where did those come from? The look on his face spooked me. I wasn't sure what was happening. I... I picked them for Brett? The old man's face went slack with shock. You know Brett? You've seen her? What? I I whirled around to look at her. She held out her hands in supplication. Tears streamed down her face. For the first time, I noticed she had on the same outfit as she had yesterday. I'm sorry, Jason. I didn't... I didn't know what to say. Jason? Abe asked louder. I said, have you seen Brett? I couldn't tear my gaze from her. Apparently, your grandma wasn't the only one who had the gift, she said, and walked through the door. When I say walk through the door, I mean right through it, a freaking solid metal closed door. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. Finally, I half fell onto one of the chairs. I heard Abe talking, but it was like he was speaking through a tunnel. It seemed like forever before I could focus on him. There was nothing I could say that wouldn't sound insane, so I didn't bother to sugarcoat. I said, You didn't see her? Just now? When you came in here? He shook his head. His roomy eyes huge. I told him about working with her, about some of the things she'd said, even about the weird ringing phone. When I finished, he just stared at me. To be honest, 
I don't know whether to believe you right now or call the cops, he said. I nodded. It was a fair statement. I don't know what I'd think if I were in his shoes. She said you used to be a cop before your wife got sick. I looked up at him. She said you're the reason she loves dandelions. You told her about how your wife loved them and how you decorated her hospital room with them before she died. Brett said it was the most romantic thing she'd ever heard. Abe sat heavily in the chair. I did tell her that. Can I ask you to describe her for me? I did. Down to her scuffed boots, and he nodded. Then he reached into a desk drawer and pulled out a picture of her. It was Brett, all right. But on a missing poster. The clothing described as the last outfit she was seen wearing was what I'd seen her in. She went missing from her shift here six months ago. I showed up and this place was wide open. There was a great deal of blood out by that payphone. The police never had any leads. I gestured at the row of monitors. One showed the drink machine and phone. What about the cameras? Installed after the fact. Because of her. Too little, too damn late. He leaned forward, giving me a hard stare. I loved that little girl. She was like a daughter to me. I've brought her dandelions myself. I've never believed in ghosts, but I saw your face this morning. I believe that you saw her. Well, you're some kind of nut and think you saw her, but I don't know how you know some of those things if that were the case. Brett and I worked together some before we lost personnel. She got bumped nights. I think she would have mentioned you, and I only told her the dandelion story right before she went missing. You could be the nut who took her, but I don't think so. I can't imagine why she'd share something like that with a person who would hurt her. If you see her again, ask her how much a mail-order bride costs. What? I felt like I'd fallen back down the rabbit hole again. Nothing made sense. I wondered if I was dreaming. Just do it, Abe said. Now go home, you look like shit. Only when I stumbled to the parking lot did I remember my promise to ride the train with her. I thought about Brett and Lotina girl. In fact, I skipped class and lay in bed and thought about them all day. When I got to work that night, Tom was the only one there. Even though I still felt punched, drunk, and scared, I had hoped Brett would be sitting there. Abe apparently hadn't told Tom about any of it because he treated me with the same dismissiveness as always. It was weird to look back and realize he and Brett had never really spoken or interacted at all. I hadn't had a clue. By 4am I was getting a little stir-crazy, so I jumped up to walk around the storage buildings. I turned the corner of the last one and walked straight through Brett. I screamed like a little girl. She giggled a little and clamped her hand over her mouth. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jason. Are you real? I demanded. Am I crazy? I think I'm real, she said. At least, I was. I know it sounds like I'm lying, but I don't remember much. She nodded at the payphone. I remember this phone and it ringing. I think he used that to catch me off guard. I answered it and he hit me with something, I think. She pinched the bridge of her nose. I think he's about to kill that girl on the train. Maybe I'm supposed to help her. Abruptly, she swung her fist at my arm and it passed right through. I yelped, stop doing that. Despite everything, she laughed. I was just checking. I don't know how I'm supposed to stop him when he can't see me and I can't touch him. She winked. On the bright side, I bet you look crazy as hell on the security cameras right now. I scowled at her. Then something occurred to me. I glanced at my phone. 4.20 a.m. Hey, the phone didn't ring. 
She shot at a scared look. What does that mean? Are we on the right track, or are we running out of time? I had no answer. The next morning when Abe came in, he gave me a wry look and said, Is she here now? I nodded and pointed at the chair she was sitting on. Brett, how much does a mail-order bride cost? She laughed. Tell him I said, ask Ernie. I told him, and his dark eyes teared up. Brett, what happened to you? He asked. She doesn't remember, but we're trying to figure it out, I said. Tell him Maggie still visits him. I've seen her around him. She's got a little girl she calls Bumblebee with her. I told him, and he burst into tears. When he could finally speak, his voice was a gasp. There's not a soul alive who knows that. Bumblebee was our daughter. She died back in 1974. I've never talked about her since. Jason, the train, she said, and I told Abe we had to go. Godspeed, son, he said. When we got on the train, the girl was already there. The bald man got on at the same stop he had previously. His attention was once again fixed on her, but hers was once again fixed on her phone. I had no weapon and this guy was twice my size, but when I thought about him hurting Brett or this stranger, I think I could have taken him down with pure adrenaline. We were about to find out anyway, because this time when she stood, he stood too. It was still early, not a lot of folks out yet. We followed him following her, trying to stay ducked out of sight. She paused outside his storefront and fumbled in her purse for her keys. That was the distraction he was waiting on. He charged at her like a bull. It was terrifying how quickly he seized her and dragged her into an alleyway. I ran blindly into the alley behind them. He had her pinned against the wall, his meaty hand around her throat. Hey! I screamed. Hey, let her go! She still had her keys in her hand. While he gaped at me, she swung at his head with a vicious arc. She missed his eye, but the key dug into his cheek. The girl gave it a savage yank, opening up his face. With a bellow of pure rage, he dropped her and grabbed his ruined cheek. Blood spurted between his fingers and he ran straight at me. I made a desperate lunge for his legs, but he barreled past me straight into the pathway of Amico's milk truck. I'd hear the sound of that impact in my head for the rest of my life. A thudding, cracking, squelching sound. But I was glad. He'd never hurt another girl again. Brett was gone. I missed her terribly and hoped every day she'd reappear. I realized that was selfish, and then I just hoped she was at peace. There was no grave to visit, so sometimes I'd gather little bouquets of dandelions and place them at the office or at my apartment. Such happy, hopeful little things. Four months after the incident with Edward Culpepper, that was his name, I'd followed the story avidly in the papers. I was getting a little overtime, helping Abe go through the stack of delinquent customers. Looks like we'll be cleaning out units number 27 and number 38, he said. Non-payment of rental fees. He tossed the copies of their agreements on the desk in front of me, and I froze. Edward Culpepper's face stared up at me from the photocopy of his driver's license. Renter of unit number 27. Abe noticed my face and said, Jason, are you okay? Th that's him, I said. 
that's the guy who killed Brett. I don't know why I didn't think of it before then. Her strange fear of that unit? Now it made sense. I told Abe, and that old man moved faster than I did as we grabbed the combination for that lock. It took us a while, because the unit was completely filled with old furniture and boxes of junk. But towards the back, we found a metal barrel. On the ground beside it lay Brett's army jacket. Abe grabbed my arm. We are not opening that. We are calling the cops right now. Do you understand me? I let him pull me outside because I didn't want to see her like that either. Brett's body was finally laid to rest. With her mother's permission, and notice to the caretaker so he wouldn't try to kill us, Abe and I did some gardening work on her grave that next spring. Yellow dandelions covered it, looking as beautiful and sunny as the girl they memorialized. I think she would be pleased. Five or six years passed. I graduated from college, got a real job, fell in love and out of love a couple of times. But I never really stopped thinking of her. Every time I saw a white dandelion, I picked it and made a wish. When I was in the area, I visited her grave and made sure she still had her cheery little offerings. One day I was riding my motorcycle up near Nashville, enjoying a sunny summer day. I guess the driver of the Camaro didn't see me when he swerved around a semi to change lanes. I flew through the air and fell back down, hitting the ground with a bone-jarring thud. I lay there, conscious of sounds and light, but I couldn't move at all. I couldn't feel anything either, except for the heat of the sun on my face. I was disoriented, but I guess I was in the median? Lying on grass? For sure, because there was a round, white dandelion inches from my nose. Blackness seeped at the edges of my peripheral vision. I couldn't blow on it, but I made a wish anyway, then passed out. When I came to, I still couldn't move, but I felt a little more. Specifically, I felt someone nudging at my side. I looked up to see Brett prodding me with the toe of her boot. You gonna lie there all day? She asked and extended her hand. Surprisingly, my hand rose to grab hers and didn't pass through. She felt solid, real. I wondered if I was in the hospital and this was some anesthesia-induced delirium, but the sun felt real enough. I even smelled burned rubber. I let her help me up, and I stood there for a moment, swaying. I saw my bike some yards away, crushed. Ugh, I said. Maybe I shouldn't move too much before the paramedics get here. She winced. Yeah, about that. She pointed to the ground beside me. It was surreal to see my broken body laying there, staring sightlessly up at the sky. Oh, I said. Ouch. She shook her head. I told you those things would kill you. So, now what? I asked. Is there a bright light we walk towards or what? You're so calm. I like that about you. She shrugged. If there's something we're supposed to be walking toward, I haven't found it yet. Maybe it's just me and you. Maybe it's my wish, I said. And she raised an eyebrow. I made a wish right before I passed out, died, whatever. She scrunched up her nose. Oh yeah? Is that why I'm here? What was the wish? Just one I've wished a thousand times now? You're really bad about responding to your ghost messages. I took her hands and made her face me. Sorry, still getting the hang of this business. 
She waved her hand dismissively. Such a rookie. But tell me, what was your wish? What I always wish. That I could see you again someday and do this, I said and kissed her. I'm not sure how long we stood like that, kissing and holding each other while sirens screamed and traffic whizzed by on the other side of the median. Eventually, we started walking. I didn't know where we were going, didn't care. All I knew was that I was with her. So, I said, Who's Ernie, and what's this about a mail-order bride? Before she could tell me, a terrible cramp seized my body and I felt myself being tugged backwards. Brett frowned, her green eyes suddenly sad. It's not your time, she said. Stop fighting it. I didn't want to let go. I wanted to stay with her. But the tugging became a vacuum until I had no choice. I went hurtling backwards. I blinked and saw an ambulance worker standing over me. There you are, he said as he popped up the stretcher I was somehow on. They loaded me onto the helicopter. I saw Brett standing over his shoulder. She held a dandelion in her hand. It's okay, Jason, she said. Some things are worth waiting for. Then she blew on the dandelion, making a wish. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. I hope you enjoyed Dandelions by Stephanie Schism, as performed by Alicia Pavlis. Up next, we've got a tale for you from author Jeff Harton, as performed by Jonathan West, about the strangest things ever hauled aboard a ship by seasoned sailors. 
And here's a hint. It's not a tire. Before I proceed, however, I'd like to tell you a bit more about tonight's sponsor, Obscura. Listeners, need a true crime fix? Be sure to check out Obscura, a true crime podcast. With atmospheric music and sound design, Obscura, a true crime podcast, shines a spotlight on the darker things in life by taking a narrative approach to covering real murders, mysteries, missing persons, and more. What do they mean by a narrative approach? Obscura structures their episodes in such a way that they paint a narrative in your mind. With a heavy focus on victims and less-known cases, each week, host Justin will take you on a deep dive into the dark side of history, mystery, and murder. Be warned, Obscura is not for the squeamish. Shocking crimes are covered in full detail, and real court and 911 audio is used when possible. If you're a true crime fan with a taste for the hard stuff, then Obscura has you covered. Each month sees the release of Obscura Black Label. Black Label is reserved for only the darkest cases. Finally, if you're a listener that likes a binge, Obscura has a large library of episodes ready for you to download now. You can find Obscura, a true crime podcast, on the Himalaya app or your podcast app of choice. Just search Obscura True Crime and you can't miss their logo. Thanks so much for your time and for giving Obscura a listen this month. They appreciate your support. Now that we've delivered you a fuel tank of nightmare fuel, courtesy of Obscura, allow me to rekindle the digital campfire of my own design with our next frightening tale. In it, we discover why this might not be the best time to take up fishing as a career. From author Jeff Harden, as brought to life by voice actor Jonathan West, I present to you Dead Boats. I worked a shrimp boat called the Melissa on the Gulf. Hot, sweaty work, but all the shrimp you can eat, so there's that. Captain Mike was my boss, a wizened old salt. Rough around the edges, but a good man and a good boss. I worked with him out in the open waters for years before we split. Here's what happened. So one day we were out, early, in an attempt to beat the other boats and get a good haul. I start cranking up the nets, position them over the collecting bin, and let them go. Whole shit ton of shrimp this morning. Today is going to be a good and profitable trip at this rate. I look up at the nets and I see something caught up in it. Probably driftwood, but I gotta get it down or it'll rip the nets. I drop them down so I can pull it off. It's definitely not driftwood. I don't know what it is. It looks like a small arm, like a child's arm, but it's not. It's a mottled green with brown flecks, but the texture almost seems like shark skin. Thin, long fingers, almost five inches long. I almost can't call them fingers. They're webbed to one another with a thin layer of skin, almost translucent in the sun. I've never seen anything like it. Short, pointed claws where fingernails would be in a person. I look down to the end of the arm and I see it's been twisted and broken, caught in the nets. 
At the end, it looks like it was sawed or gnawed off in a hurry by something dull. Dark red blood drips off it, pooling on the deck. I must have been in a trance, staring at the odd thing, because the next thing I remember is Captain Mike screaming at me. Get that fucking thing off the boat right now! I snap and quickly work it free, tossing it in the water as fast as I can. Some of the blood stains my hands and my shirt, but I rinse it off. Not the first time something bled on me out here. As I clean up, I realize that Mike had turned the boat around. We're heading back to port. It's not even ten and he's calling it a day? I have bills to pay and maybe a hundred pounds of shrimp ain't gonna cut it. I'm about to have a few words with the captain, but one look at him and I see something is clearly off. He keeps glancing at the sides of the boat as he speeds up. While I'm tidying up, I see him pull out the emergency flare gun and check it, pulling out the extra flares too. I guess this isn't the time to bother him. We get back, and as I finish up, Mike comes over to me and palms me $400. Hell of a lot more than I'd make normally. As I take the money, his hand grabs mine tight and he pulls me in. Today's the short day. The extra is for you to keep quiet about why we had a short day. All right. See you tomorrow? He lets my hand go and starts looking to the water. He seems lost. Uneasy. This is a man who spent his whole damn life on a boat. Yeah, I feel uncomfortable just seeing how uncertain he is. Yeah, I guess. Not a few drinks. I know I will. On morning, but with pay like this, I hope I find one of those arm things every damn day. That evening, I find myself at the local bar, closest one to the waterfront where all the working stiffs congregate. We've been buying rounds for a few hours, bullshitting about work and sex and general nothings. I've got a pretty good load on and my curiosity gets the better of me. I ask in a low tone. So what's the strangest thing you've ever brought up in the nets? And don't fucking say tires. I mean, a whole car would be weird, but tires like all the time. I get a couple of answers. Will once found one of those inflatable sex dolls. Rick found a box with a whole set of Encyclopedia Britannicas. John found not one individual, but a pair of boots. Not that that's odd. What was odd is that they were his exact size. Hell, he was even wearing them. I push a little farther. Yeah, but you ever see anything, like, unnatural? Like, he couldn't explain it. I get a coarse and ass. But Kirk suddenly gets real quiet and starts staring intently at the sweat beating off his glass. I think I got all I can now, information-wise. Now for a couple more beers. My alarm goes off dutifully at 7.30 the next morning, and I dutifully go off at my alarm in a swarm of profanity. My head feels like it's going to explode. I wish it would. I dutifully crack open a club soda, swallow some ibuprofen, and turn up a hot shower. By eight, I'm recovering and on my way to the docks. I wander up to the Melissa, Captain Mike's boat. He's muttering something under his breath, staring at the deck. The deck's been all scratched to hell. Deep, long rakes intently scratching all over the place. Most of them seeming to congregate where the nets release. Where the blood spilled yesterday. I stand behind Mike for a couple of minutes until he acknowledges me. Not going out today, not like this. Sorry. Alright, but I gotta work, you know? I'm gonna ask around to see if anyone else is short a deckhand. Do what you gotta do. See you tomorrow. 
Yeah, sure. I luck out and find a boat short of man. I like Mike. Worked with him for years. But I work for paper, not a man. If he doesn't get his shit together, I'll have to find another ship. We have an uneventful day out on the other ship. I'm at the docks again, 8 a.m. sharp. Captain's got a whole load of bleach and cleaners. I wonder what's up. I'll pay you double if you help me lace the scrapes off, bleach down the whole thing, and refinish the deck. These scrapes and stains are bad for the boat. Shit, that's a lot of work. But double pay is double pay. Mike might be losing it, but I won't stop him from paying that much. I agree. It's a long day, much harder than our usual trips out. Still, profitable. Before I leave, Mike asked me to help him pull down the nets. That request stands out to me, as they're a bitch to move, heavy and unwieldy. You usually only do it if you got a rip or something, but these are perfectly good. As I leave, I see Mike pile them up on the beach, pour some diesel on top, and light them up. Doesn't make any sense. Burning good nets like that? And why burning? After working my hands and back that hard, I need a beer. I head out to the bar. I spot Kirk at the bar and fall in next to him. We talk a bit, starting with the weather. For other people, that may sound like tepid conversation, but out on the water, it's vital information. Eventually, I get enough in me and we start talking about our boats, bitching about our bosses. It starts off as a good-natured pressure release, but when I start bitching about all the extra work I had to do today with the deck and the nets, Kurt cuts me off abruptly. He's not crazy. You need to find another boat. Maybe somewhere a little further up the coast. That's all I get out of him. He's like a stone wall after that. I'd assumed Mike had spent a few too many years under the sun baking his brains, but Kirk is usually pretty good with advice. Still, the next morning I head in to talk to Mike. We finish restoring the decks. Now he's talking about possible residue on the sides of the propellers. Says he wants to scrape those down next. <laughs> this is crazy. It's way beyond a two-man job. You need to dry dock a boat for all he wants. It's the start of the season, and I know he doesn't have enough cash laying around for that. I spend the day trying to pressure wash the sides of the boat as a cheaper fix. At the end of the day, Mike slips me a few hundred dollars and looks me right in the eye. I don't want to go out there. And not with a ship like this, he's not ready. Alright, but if there's no work for me, I, I need to look elsewhere. I understand. It's been good. He gives me a firm handshake and looks me right in the eye. Something is welling behind those eyes, but he fights it back. He turns to organize up the ropes. I notice that he's got a heavy revolver clipped to his side. It's not unusual for a bolt to have a gun on board, but a hand cannon on your person? I'm starting to really worry about Mike. I mean, this is not normal behavior. I'm not sure if I can talk about this to anyone just yet. I flounder a bit, but find a job after a few days. I still see Captain Mike cleaning off the Melissa every day when I go to the docks. He's there scrubbing when I leave, and he's still scrubbing when I get back. There are new scrapes all over the hull, like something was scratching its way climbing up. Mike's become a pariah on the docks. No one wants to talk about it, and when they do, it's in low, hushed tones. Eventually, Captain Mike decides Melissa is finally clean. 
or he can't afford to go on without another day's bounty. He hires Carlos, the new guy in the docks, and they go out. I make a point of breaking the silence and talk to Mike to check in after they return at the end of the day. They've been catching much less than usual. Like, half, if not worse. Still, he's getting back out on the water and that's gotta be good for him. Carlos says he's been a little freaked out by the sharks that seem to tail them. I try to put him at rest. Tell him sharks aren't that big of a deal. They're really just opportunistic bastards. I lie and make him feel a little better. Is that really a lie? One day the Melissa doesn't come back. I wait at the docks searching the horizon. It gets dark. Mike doesn't usually stay out this late. I go to the bar and try to drink my body weight in vodka. Weeks later, another captain finds the Melissa floating a few miles out to sea. I wasn't there, so the rest is hearsay and rumor. The police report is still sealed. Apparently, it was a bloodbath. Blood dried onto the decks, most of it right under the nets. Pieces of viscera scattered everywhere, at least the pieces the seagulls hadn't eaten. The pilot room saw some of the worst of it. Just guts spread everywhere. Some tufts of hair and skin, too, like someone was flayed by somebody who either didn't know what they were doing or was too enthusiastic to do it right. Mike used to sit there when we were out. Mike's revolver was found there, too. Four shots fired, but no idea if anyone was hit. Who could even tell whose blood belonged to who? In the deck, they found a long piece of metal embedded deep in the wood. It looked like it was a piece of an old boat anchor. It had been crudely sharpened. The investigation wrapped up. Definitely foul play was the conclusion. Maritime law says that dead boats found at sea become the property of whoever finds them. Here's the thing. The captain who found it wanted absolutely no part of it. Refused to even set foot on it. He had it sunk over by the reefs. He even took his own ship and put it in the dry docks for the season to scrape off the wood and have it sanitized and refinished. <laughs> he was talking about selling it and moving up to different places. He said the waters weren't as hospitable as they used to be. I hope you enjoyed Dead Boats by author Jeff Harden, as performed by Jonathan West. Up next, we leave behind the sinister depths of the sea and move inland to a school campus where one young man, hoping to stay in the best shape of his life, might just end up having a brush with death instead. From author Colin Entman, as brought to life by voice actor Jason Hill, I present to you Biting at My Heels. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. 
Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I enjoy running quite a bit. It might come off as a bit odd to say, but it really is important to me. I found my love for it back in high school when I ended up drifting aimlessly under the cross-country track teams. Joining was less of an active choice on my part and more of a settling. My parents wanted me to be more like my football and academic all-star brother, and I just wanted them off my back. Running seemed like the easiest choice. It was less of a skill-based sport and more of a test of endurance, which is something I thought I had plenty of, given all the hour-long lectures I've sat through. Of course, it wasn't easy like I thought it would be. Much like any sport, it required a lot of dedication and hard work, the blood, sweat, and tears, and all that jazz. Given my general attitude towards life at the time, most would expect that to put me off. But surprisingly, it didn't. I loved it. It was less about the racing, competing, and all that, and more about the simple act of running, of just getting out there and moving your body. It was really hard at first when you have to build up your stamina and become capable of running long distances. However, the feeling of your body improving, of becoming able to go farther for longer, is very satisfying. Plus, just having the ability to run miles and miles is incredibly freeing in a way. Something about being able to travel without relying on anything but yourself is a very positive factor in building up my self-worth. Having a more dependable body made me feel like a more reliable, complete person. By the time graduation came around, it was part of my identity. If there was one part of it that I wasn't particularly fond of would be the occasionally nasty weather. In particular, timing a run outdoors during the summer can be a bit of a pain. When it comes to spring or fall, you can pretty much just go out for a run whenever. For winter, it's less about timing and more about conditions. You can always bundle up a bit to keep the cold at bay, but whether or not surfaces will be icy or under thick layers of snow is definitely something to be concerned about. However, in no season are your windows for going out for a run more limited than during the summer months. If you live in an area where you have comparatively mild summers, this may not be the case for you. However, if you live in an area where the temperatures often go above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and death from heat stroke is a common occurrence, then you're probably able to relate. In weather like that, if you want to manage a run outside, you either need to go out in the early morning or late evening, or just find a decently shaded area and hope for the best. Sure, you could just go to an air-conditioned gym and run on a treadmill, but it just isn't quite the same, you know? Thankfully, when it came time for college, I ended up at one with a beautiful campus with extensive jogging and bike paths, which were in well-shaded forested areas. On top of that, my schedule ended up organized in such a way that I had plenty of time free in the mornings and evenings on most days. Overall, I was in pretty good shape to be able to run outside in any season, even in the hottest days of summer. If it weren't for what happened that one day, it would have been perfect. 
I was a bit late getting out of the dorm for my run that evening. I had to meet with my professor after class to go over my plan for the final project, and the meeting ended up running a bit late. It was getting close to sunset by the time I got back from class and finished changing into my workout gear, but I decided to go out for a run anyway. Missing a day was a bit of a pet peeve of mine, and I figured that if I ran quickly enough, I'd be able to make it back before the sun set completely. I was right about that. I did manage to get back before the sun finished dipping below the horizon. However, there was one thing that I neglected to factor in. That, in dense woods, it would start to get really dark long before the sun set completely. I was about halfway through the last leg of my six-mile loop when it really started to set in. I could barely see my own feet hit the pavement, let alone the path ahead. It was then that I realized my mistake. However, I was well beyond being able to do much of anything about it. I was about a mile and a half away from getting back to the relatively well-lit campus, but it wasn't like there was a way for me to cut the run short at that point. I was already on the quickest way back. The most I could do was run a bit faster. Sighing, I picked up my pace a bit, hoping that I could make it back to campus before I lost all traces of light. I wished then that I hadn't left all my devices at home and opted to enjoy the sounds of nature rather than music. At least then I could have had something to light my path. Unfortunately, I didn't quite make it. When I was still about half a mile out, the forest had finally become pitch black without even the light of the moon piercing through the thick canopy. I couldn't even see my own hand in front of my face. I didn't really mind it so much, though. It did feel a bit unnerving, but running without sight was also sort of fun. A new experience. Sort of like showering with the bathroom lights off. Sure, running in the dark was a lot riskier in comparison, but the maintenance staff did a pretty good job of keeping the trails clear so I was in little danger of tripping. Also, at that point, it was pretty much a straight shot to campus. I felt relatively safe. That is, until I wasn't. It came upon me as a sort of feeling, a general sense of something being amiss. I was more or less certain that it was just my imagination playing tricks on me. All the same, though, I certainly wasn't having fun anymore. 0.4 miles left. I found myself shivering a bit, and not because of the cold. I found myself thinking back on the time I wet myself in a haunted house at five years old. The pure sense of fear that I felt back then, in that moment, it seemed deeply similar to what was presently creeping up my spine as I ran through those woods. The rapid beating of my heart, already quickened by the exercise, pushed fearful adrenaline through my system even quicker. I picked up the pace. 0.3 miles left. I almost couldn't hear the sound of the branch snapping over the pounding of my heart and the rush of my breath. It came from somewhere off in the woods behind me and to my left. It was a perfectly normal sound to hear in the woods, completely innocuous, probably just a small animal in the underbrush. However, being as anxiety-ridden as I was in that moment, it may as well have been a gunshot. Reason was leaking rapidly from my mind. 
I felt certain that whatever had made that noise was coming for me. I was running full tilt now. 0.2 miles left. I heard a second set of footfalls. Where once it was just the rhythmic smacking of my sneakers against the pavement. Suddenly, there was an accompaniment. It seemed that whoever, or whatever, was behind me was trying to match my pace as best they could. But it was ever so slightly offbeat. The sound seemed to be getting closer. I broke into a dead sprint. So did they, dropping any pretense of stealth. 0.1 miles left. I could see the exit, where the last of the trees parted giving way to the well-manicured lawns of the campus grounds. It was so very close, a distance I could cover in less than a minute at a light jog. I couldn't take much comfort in that, though. Whatever was chasing me was right at my heels. They were so close that they might be able to reach out and touch me. With this proximity, I started to notice things. Little details that seemed to only terrify me further. The scrape of claws against the pavement with every step. A wet stench of rotting meat. A breath of hot air that coated my back in a vile humidity. It was just a few more strides away from escape. But those last steps might as well have been a marathon. I felt like a rabbit desperately trying to outpace a set of ravenous jaws. It was so close. Three steps. Two. One. I broke free of the woods, losing my balance and tumbling off the path and into the grass as I went. Stunned, it took me a few moments before I scrambled to my feet, fearful of whatever had been chasing me following me into the light. But there was nothing there. Nothing but the pitch-black entrance to the trails. The way the light hit the trees made it seem almost like a dark tunnel leading into the depths of a mountain, and the great gaping maw of some massive beast. Intimidating, yet harmless. Whatever had been chasing me was gone. Perhaps it was never even there. I stumbled to my feet, out of breath yet full of relief. I chuckled a bit to myself and glanced about, thankful to find that no one was around to catch sight of my foolishness. Having fully convinced myself that I had simply imagined the whole thing, I headed off towards my dorm at a limping jog. It felt like I had pulled a calf muscle during my tumble. It wasn't until I got back to my dorm room and started stripping down for a shower that I saw them. A series of small, thin incisions in my right calf, arranged in the shape of a semicircle. They were about an inch deep and steadily oozing blood. It was almost as if I had been bitten by a small shark with a mouth full of razor blades. With that incident, in addition to the several disappearances that occurred out in those woods over the next five years, I was pretty much done with running on those trails. I stuck to using the treadmills at the school gym for the rest of my time at that college, even during the daylight. It just felt safer that way.
I hope you enjoyed Biting at My Heels by author Colin Entman, as performed by Jason Hill. If you enjoyed what you heard tonight, we'd like to remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave us a five-star review and a kind word, and to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, subscribe to us on YouTube, where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, chillingtalesfordarknights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. Finally, thanks again to today's sponsor, Obscura, for their support of this show. Don't forget, Obscura has a large library of episodes ready for you to download right now as we speak, and you can find them and their entire back catalog on the Himalaya app or your podcast app of choice. Just search Obscura True Crime. You can't miss it. I'm your host, Otis Jiry, and it's been a pleasure as always. I'm so glad you were able to join us tonight. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights and turn on the dark. <laughs> Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn about more of our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Otis Jack. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respected authors, Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Logo by Craig Groshek. If you're looking for some fresh tales while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, Otis Jiry's Horror Storytime, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find it. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Or search for my podcast, Scary Stories Told in the Dark, where I perform four brand new tales every episode. Got a scary tale of your own you'd like to perform? We take submissions. Email us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tone considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well. To get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing. Leave a kind word or a request. Don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com 
and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>